Welcome to The Rest is Education. This week, we are once again just a, a pair hosting, David Marshall and I, uh, Aaron being overseas visiting family in the States. We've got a, actually a huge following in America, so uh, hi to everyone over on on that side of the pond. Hopefully, Aaron, you're also listening and you'll be back to join us uh, at some point soon. Uh, now, David, you wanted to say something about matters on, on this side of the pond. Yeah, to start off with, I think we, even though this podcast is uh, episode is not about it, I think we should definitely mention that there are strikes happening in the UK, uh, teacher strikes happening in the UK over this next few months. There's not a lot we want to say about it right now. We just want to say that we know it's happening and we know there are seven strikes planned and that we'll just be watching what's going to be taking place and watching what the government uh, is going to, how it's going to respond to that with the unions. So, um, yeah, keep this space in mind. And if you've got any thoughts or any experience of that, we'd love to hear from you. Do write into us uh, e- by email or Twitter, you know, that where you can find us. And we now want to move on to talk about the episode of the pod, which is the thinking school. Both Ross and I and Aaron as well have been part of a thinking school. And we're really interested in this idea, this ethos. We'll be explaining a little bit about what it is. But we thought we'd run this episode for all teachers and educators who are interested in what a thinking school is and want to know a little bit more about it. Ross, do you want to start us off with what's your definition of a thinking school? Because a lot of people say, isn't every school a thinking school? What would you say makes a different? I mean, I suppose one of the things that comes to mind is how cliche the term is. And uh, really, we have to move away from from the the name of of the organization, the Thinking Schools Network. We we need to move away from that a a little bit. But really, it's all about metacognition being embedded into the school and the pupils being aware of how they best learn. And so I suppose in that sense, a thinking school is a school where you teach the children how they think and you teach in a way that is aligned to that so that it gets the best out of them. Uh, and, and, you know, we're going to be going into huge detail, but that, that would be my, my take on it. Do, do you have something a little bit more concise, David? No, I think that's a really good definition. The, the word metacognition is really the important word, isn't it? Because we know from the Education Endowment Foundation that metacognition has a huge impact on children's learning. We've talked about this before on the pod. And the thinking school ethos, which is a very broad series of strategies, uh, are ways of getting children and teachers and leaders to think about their thinking. So in that sense, that's, I think, a great definition of what a thinking school is. And we can go from there and kind of explore a little bit more about the different structures and things like that. Yeah, so th- this week we were actually joined by uh, a very special guest and um, not quite from as far away as our, our last guest. And uh, that's George Vinicus, who at the moment uh, we work quite closely with. Uh, George, do you want to come on and tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Oh, thanks so much, uh, Ross and David. Yeah, lovely to be here and uh, be, uh, be part of the podcast. Um, so I do I hail from uh, way down south um, yeah, from a little province called uh, the Eastern Cape in South Africa. Um, having come from a school called St Andrews Prep, where where there was a little bit of thinking schools happening or thinking uh, mind maps in particular, and prior to that, uh, from a school called Sachs, um, the, the, actually the oldest school in South Africa. So so yeah, so um, 
my teaching background is, is that I've been teaching for about 20 years and, and until until I did my postgraduate studies um, uh, in education, I hadn't really come come across thinking of schools that much. And and it and it just happened to coincide with the school that I was at in Cape Town, Sachs, who were then starting to introduce uh, the whole concept of thinking of schools, um, which tied in beautifully with the little module that I picked up in, in my honours, uh, which was the philosophy for children. So which um which really just I suppose scaffolded that whole process um of thinking and 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 children being able to reason. Uh, because as you know, you know children aren't aren't uh, developed to reason until what I think their early twenties, I think it is. Um so this whole concept really was was uh, it, it, it certainly piqued a, a, a serious interest and a and an intrigue. And and it kind of went the path of picture books and 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 that just opened a whole kind of new understanding and and thinking from 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 a personal perspective so yeah and and it has become a real interest brilliant and george obviously you're now working over in the uk and uh you're at a school which is just about to begin its thinking school journey i was just on on the cusp of that and so we're you're, you're very well placed and, and we're hopefully going to be able to benefit enormously from from your knowledge that you've built up over the past two decades um, so should we should we begin, I suppose, maybe by talking a little bit about the background and where thinking schools come from? Because actually, George, you just mentioned you weren't really that aware of them until you happened to be undergoing a course that, that mentioned them. And, and so where did they come from? Um, they they certainly weren't uh, sort of on on the scene, uh, let's say, 20 years ago. So, um, David, do you want to begin with that? Or Yes, my knowledge may be a little patchy, but as far as I'm aware, they started in the States and certainly thinking maps, uh, which I think is one of the big um, originators, uh, one of the big original strategies of the thinking school started with David Hyerly. And you mentioned that already, George, this uh, thinking maps effectively give children maps to structure their thinking for those who don't know what they are. If you think mind maps, it's not too far different. Um, and I believe from that, the thinking school sort of ethos developed with, as I said, a whole series of strategies. Just to give you the current situation, as I understand it, is that thinking school in the US is now different from thinking schools worldwide. And in the UK, at least, they're called Thinking Matters now, and they're linked up to a whole lot of other schools around the world, of which, George, obviously, you, you've you got experience from South Africa. We have experience from the UK, and we know that quite a lot of other places have too. So that's kind of, as I understand it, the history, but maybe, Ross, you know more than that. Do you have any any up-to-date details? Yeah, so I'm going to play the history teacher card a little bit. But um, yeah, essentially, over here, um, before Thinking Matters changed its name, the movement w- was really centered around some work that was done by Bob Burden at Exeter University. And and so really, it was in 2006 that we saw uh, his research being published, and a, a lot of uh, agreement around the pedagogical benefits of, uh, well, metacognition, teaching the children met- metacognition. And and um, so really, it, it has grown exponentially from, well, really not that long ago, you know, 15 years ago or so. And and it's now in 360 schools worldwide. Uh, and I think they're mainly Anglophone countries. I, I think um, the majority of the 14 countries that uh, accredited thinking schools are in are mainly Anglophone. But um, 
by no means uh, just Anglophone countries. Um, so yeah, it's becoming exponentially more popular. And I, for one, uh, I'm hearing conversations around thinking schools much more. And, and I think um, those that are recent sort of graduates from, from PGCE courses and things in the UK will be much more likely to have, have had that as part of their training. And uh, anecdotally, um, where we are at the moment, um, are two most recent additions who are fairly new entrants into their career. They've both had that as, as core parts of their, their PGCE course. That's great. And maybe um, we could turn to George to tell us a little bit about what's your understanding of a thinking school and a little bit about what you've observed from your experiences overseas. Yeah, so um, I think I have uh, a bit of an advantage of having experienced both um, a, a school that's taken thinking schools the full route um, from from conception um, fr- from someone who's incredibly passionate about uh, about thinking schools and trying to generate something like that in a school to to a school um, where yes, you have the posters, and I think there are so many. Uh, organizations out there you know you have the posters on the walls um and 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 you feel you can call yourself a, a particular organization um but unless there's someone that's actually driving the process or unless the people are they're a part, part of a drive committee that are driving that process um the the, the two are two completely different worlds apart. So on the one on, on on the one side of things, um, the, the the first school I was part of that um, that uh, established I think or that um, introduced thinking schools into into the school um, that went from concept from from a person who was incredibly passionate about uh, trying to understand how kids how children are able to think and philosophize more and how we as adults get them to think more about what they're doing and not just academic work in terms of what they're doing, but also just about being citizens. How are you uh, able to be a better citizen and contribute better to, to the world? Um, again, versus, you know, the other end of the spectrum where you have posters of thinking maps on the, on the walls and they're there for you to use how you use them. That's up to you. You know, so so it, uh, from what you're saying, there are different ways of doing this and we can start to maybe unpack you know, how you can do a thinking school well and how you can do a thinking school where it is just surface and not really going very deep. You said kind of like we, we've all talked a bit about metacognition. Uh, can you give some examples of what kind of stuff that you would do to get children to think about their thinking you mentioned p for c philosophy for children yeah i think it's one of those things that needs to be embedded into the curriculum i feel um, and if it isn't again it just becomes posters on the wall maybe harking back to to the success success story of you know from the school that did it well um it was something that became absolutely embedded in the culture of the school uh so much so that 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 some of the school's branding uh, was re, was rebranded um, around the core values, and then bringing in the habits of mind um, to to draw those in and and pull them in into everyone's thinking. Uh, because at the forefront of 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 everyone who 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 works in the school, be a teacher or you know where it was where it was the children, everyone everyone knows what the what what the core what the school's core values were. Um, but then, how do we marry those with, or how do we marry habits of mind or thinking? Um, uh, maps uh, um, into those core values, and I think, I think that was quite a clever way of of um, of of bringing thinking matters and thinking schools um, ethos um, 
into the school itself. Uh, I think that was, you know, going back, you know, looking at our, our, our drive committee meetings, I think that was the biggest question was how do we get everyone to, to get on board? You know, teachers all around the world, I think, have so much to do already. Uh, so how do you try and how do you sell this to teachers to get involved in something that may seem completely new? Um, and, I, yeah, I think that was that was the biggest at the time, the biggest question to try and answer is how do we get this embedded into the school? How do we get everyone's buy-in to try and incorporate something that was really very, very new um, into, into the school system? Um, to the point where it is now, where it is absolutely part of the culture, um, to the extent where, where children, you know, children are able to, they have tools where they're able to self-evaluate their own work. Yeah, so I, something we, David and I, experienced together at, at Notting Hill, um, we saw that actually it took quite a while to bring everyone on board. And, um, you know, you can't really force these things and, and any sort of culture of change takes perhaps years to embed. But we we saw a very obvious thinking school culture. And again, I'm pleased you mentioned that the habits of mind because they were they were very visible again in in perhaps a tokenistic way of posters on the wall but um the curriculum was was centered around those assemblies were linked to them uh, there was a real uh, sort of knitting together of of different uh, i suppose different levels of input and it did become part of the the children's day-to-day vocabulary uh, yeah. and and so that um that took time but it was very evident i thought so i think you know, at the moment, we're, we're sort of talking about thinking schools as though it's a, a, a proven thing that we're all maybe evangelists and mm. uh, we would all recommend schools becoming a thinking school. But, um, David, you, you mentioned the um, the EEF study. Is there, is there any way you could just elaborate on that and just talk about the benefits uh, mm. maybe for, for schools out there or, or um, leaders in education who might be thinking, well, I don't really know what a thinking school is. And I know by the end of this episode, I'll have more of an understanding of it. But but why bother? You know, what what are the benefits? So building on what a thinking school is, there's a series of structures that make up a thinking school and it consists of things like habits of mind, which is another way of saying the school's values that they kind of hold to be important. You've also got thinking maps, which is a series of structures that children can use to organize their thinking. Think of it as a bit like the mind mapping philosophy for children, which can be sort of called P for C. And that is often, but not always taught as a, as a discrete lesson where children are encouraged to think their way around an issue with some sort of prompt. And there are perhaps a series of other kind of ways of getting children to develop their their thinking in relation to sort of the sort of lessons that they're teaching. So you have a series of structures and that effectively makes up a thinking school. The important thing is for those structures become part of the pattern of how the school works. So the language of that uh, thinking needs to be embedded all the way through so that children in every year group know what it is that they're talking about and know how to talk about it, if that makes sense. And I would say that those those things, and they don't all have to be there and there could be other things as well in there, but those things are what sort of turns a non-thinking school into a thinking school and how that process actually happens is something we can kind of look at and develop a bit further. 
Ross, does that sound like an okay definition there? Yeah, absolutely. So what you've described are, are the different tools within the Thinking School Toolkit. Um, some of them, yeah, some of them. Um, absolutely. So, um, George, you've mentioned uh, P4C, you mentioned Habits of Mind. P4C, was that um, Sapire that delivered that or was it, was it a different organization, do you know? A uh, different organization. It was a professor at the at, uh, University of Cape Town. Um, and that was based on Professor Lipman's work that he had done with, um, and that was, I think he started in about 1974 on on, on the program. Um, and it was years in the making, um, just I don't think it gained a lot of traction, um, but there was a lot of work done on it. Um, and uh, to the point where, where, where picture books were starting to be developed. And we obviously a lot, we, we, we see a lot more picture books nowadays, um, but until that point, which wasn't very long ago, I hadn't I hadn't seen very many picture books, certainly not in South Africa. So, sure. uh, <laughs> yes, so it could have been a lot bigger, yeah. But, um, but so our so, exposure has been, I, I think, mainly. Well, I won't speak for David, but my exposure has been mainly through an organisation called Sapire. They often provide teacher training units for for um, PGC programs. And they are mainly video driven. So there'll be sort of a one minute video stimulus. And and then there's like a, a mode of discussion, isn't there? There's like a set way of having a discussion. Because I think, you know, to, to someone listening to this, they might think, oh, well, we, we discuss things in history or, or we discuss things in RS or TPR or, or whatever. But um, it's, it's actually the mode that that discussion takes and um, the teacher's role as the facilitator. That, that's quite important and i i don't mean to uh, i don't think i'm i'm quite ambitious enough to try and boil down uh, a, an entire course into the next couple of minutes but but essentially it's it's the way that it's done which is important there are different opinions from people i've talked to about whether which one works best for p4c but yes in terms of the thinking school the whole structures and the language of those structures including p4c yes they have to be embedded and that takes time and and Ross, you've got a sort of you've got a figure on how long that takes, haven't you? Yeah, I think it's it's really between three and five years that it, that it takes to to um, have a, a culture change. And I think you wouldn't tend to go for accreditation if you were going down the thinking matters route for for at least three years. Let's talk about accreditation. So this means that you in the UK, at least, I don't know about South Africa, George. You can perhaps tell us a bit more about that. But in the UK. You get accredited um, independently, not by Thinking Matters, but by Exeter University. And you have to produce a whole load of evidence as a school to prove that you are doing everything you say you're doing. And that evidence consists of everything from community work often um, that can be engaging in, in the community to just the simple aspect of how are you using it with your behavior policy how are you using thinking strategies with different lessons how is it kind of going into assemblies and the way in which the children's work is reflecting that so there's a whole ton of this evidence to produce and ross it sounds yeah from what you said that time is needed not to build the evidence up because that's just a case of finding the stuff but actually to get those routines embedded and perhaps to ensure that all the teachers all the staff really are on board and are engaged with it from our experience because i should say that we probably mentioned this before but ross and i were both on the same drive team and i'll clarify what that means in a moment but we were on the same drive team for quite a few years 
in Notting Hill. And when I joined the drive team, the school was already an established thinking school that was already accredited. But my experience was the having to be reg- relearning of as a whole staff body, and I, I'm including myself in this, of the routines and practicing them. So it wasn't just a case of you do all the stuff, you get accredited, and then you're done. I found that we were often having to, every year actually, remind ourselves what it is that we do and why we do it. And uh, not least because we get new staff in every year. So you have to make sure everybody's kind of um, inducted into this system of thinking. Um, Ross, I don't know if you want to add anything more about that because, you know, we worked on this very closely I was going to say that, you know, this was done through inset uh, at the beginning of a term in service training days, but it was also done on a weekly basis through talks in in staff meetings where you might share an element of good practice for five minutes or so. And uh, you would have a a drive team really of of unlimited number. And, And if someone was interested from a totally different department or a teaching assistant or you know an nqt um they're always welcome to to join the drive team and do you want to do you want to say what a drive team is so that we, we sure are yeah on the same page. The thinking school drive team thinking matters would say that every school needs needs a drive team and it's really individuals who are interested in in pedagogy as as all teachers should be but but are willing to and able to i suppose give up uh, a, a section of their time to then work on on really pushing the thinking school toolkit and monitor its use train staff perhaps even educate parents and that's something we did quite a bit yeah so the the drive team sort of oversee, well, oversees that and um, they would also look to operate almost like a book club in that it's their duty really to to keep abreast of current pedagogy and and to discuss what is being researched and, and and how that impacts teaching and learning within the school and how to sort of integrate changes um if 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 need be and george can i ask was were you on the drive team and was that what was your experience uh, you've talked about two different schools but was that something you were part of yeah so the first school i was yeah absolutely and um uh, exactly as Ross mentioned there, um, that the drive team wasn't exclusive to a particular group of people. Um, it, it, initially, it, it, it was. It was important that um, there was a representative from each year group to try and help drive that process through each of the years. Um, but anyone was welcome to join. And, you know, the more voices in there, the more voices that that contribute to something as, as, as big as changing um, or adding to a school's culture, you know, the better. So, so yeah, I I do agree completely with what Ross says. That it doesn't it doesn't matter who's involved. However, you do need some key drivers in particular areas to make sure that that um that there's that there's constructive buy-in to 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 a program, um or to a, to a different philosophy. Yeah, I, I I agree. And we had we had a really great range of people who were involved from lots of different years. I don't think we had representatives from every year group, but we did have a really strong contingent from the learning support team. The, uh, the SEND team. And I think that was a really valuable part of what informing what we did, because often, in my experience anyway, I would come along to meetings having just discovered this great new thing. And often the SEND team were way ahead of me and had known about this for quite a few years, but they were big, strong advocates for whatever it was we were doing. And they were sort of super excited that something that they'd been interested in for their pupils 
as being very effective was suddenly becoming a whole school philosophy. And they could see the benefit both to the children who you know, perhaps had dyslexia or autism, but but also to the children, uh, you know, to, to every child in the school. Uh, and so that was a very exciting. And those conversations were very exciting as well to have uh, with a real range of teachers. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I couldn't agree more. I think the learning support team needs to be involved. And one, one of the main pieces of research to come out of the EEF is that those pupils branded low and middle ability pupils tend to benefit by the greatest degree with regard to, to lots of the tools that we've we've mentioned. And and often, you know, if you're branded a, a sort of low ability PUPAT schools and things, it's likely that you're probably also going to have an EP or an edu- education profile. And, and so, yeah, you, I think it dovetails very well between the academic team and the, the learning support team. And, you know, without creating too many teams, uh, th- this one is a sort of a project based, very sort of hands on proactive group, which, which will then become key to your well, really to your establishment uh, if you don't have one already. Now, I'm, I'm hoping that some of our listeners are thinking about actively Im- implementing this in their settings. So I'm sort of keeping that in mind. And, and we're not here. We're not here to advocate for Thinking Matters or for the Thinking Schools Worldwide or for Thinking Maps or anything like that. We're, we're um, you know, we just teach us in our own setting. But I would like to kind of talk a little bit about, take up that what you said, Ross, there and talk about the uh, the send value uh, there because what i learned was was why some of these things are incredibly valuable uh, for children particularly as children who struggle a bit more with their learning uh, and, and one of the things for me was learning about dual coding so perhaps as quite a few listeners know dual coding is uh, simply the understanding that we learn through visual cues and also oral cues so we uh, being through our ear through our eyes so we need to take in material both visually and orally. And what dual coding effectively says, it's really a simplified version of it, is that if teachers can harness that by using visual structures, then that will enable children to learn more. And so if we come back to the thinking maps, which I know now are called the thinking frames in the UK at least, those give children a visual way of structuring and organising their knowledge. So I know, for example, you know, we go on in the UK about knowledge being vital. And of course it's vital. It, it, but but if you have knowledge, but you don't have a way of organizing that into some sort of visual schema, then you're going to really struggle to keep hold of that knowledge. And having those knowledge organizers of some sort is really helpful for all children. But as I said, particularly for those children who find learning more difficult and they're going to and it's going to enable them to remember them, remember a lot more. So coming across uh, Oliver Caviglioli's work in dual coding, I started to understand why mapping was so important. And having used it for a few years, I became a much more vocal advocate for it um, than I had been before. I must admit, I was a bit of a skeptic about both thinking schools and also about mapping. But I think teachers need to understand the reasons for something, the good pedagogical reasons why something is effective in order that they can understand that that's why they need to shift their their teaching. Ross, 
you want to say yeah, just I, I mean i couldn't agree more in that um you know mapping is is something that i god i, w- I wish i knew about at, at university as an undergraduate because we've all been there you know in, in lecture halls and things and people either side of us are scribbling copious amounts of notes and and actually if we just knew at that time that there were only eight thinking processes and and that we could map that knowledge in a particular way that it then is you know more likely to be retained and and is uh you know more in line with our thinking i i think that would really really aid uh, a, a lot of individuals who don't find uh you know knowledge retention that easy and and i think you know even in higher education there are a lot of peoples aren't there who uh, they'll be able to retain anything in any format but um it's it's everyone else george did you oh thanks russ um yeah you know, just uh, jumping on what David was saying there, um, with the you know going back to what he mentioned about send, um, is is it not a case of taking the the drill and practice out of you know your ordinary classroom and what is expected of of, of pupils? You know, it's all about time, it's all about knowledge, and the more knowledge, the quicker, the better. Um, and who is that better for? We don't know. Uh, the send send department then take and you know w- you know with respect to um, to any children that are involved in the SEND uh, program, all that's happening there is that what they're being taught is just being structured in a very different way. And so things are being slowed down completely to be thought about more constructively. Um, so, you know, who's at, who, who's at more of an advantage, the kids that are in a SEND stream or the kids are, that, are, that, that, that are continuously drilled and practiced. So for me, that, that's where this P4C, the thinking maps, the thinking uh, habits, uh, or the habits of mind at least, then, you know, uh, play so beautifully or can play so beautifully into a classroom or into a teacher's quiver. That's really nicely put, George. Can you give an example of that in your teaching, perhaps? Can you, give a, can you think of a particular occasion when you were teaching, when this became really useful and valuable and, and you saw it in action? So trying to teach uh, dividing by half to, I suppose, 11, 12-year-olds uh, can be quite an abstract thing. So so what I did was I, I asked one of the artists at my previous school um, to, to put a few um, characters together. And I then, I then I put a story to that. So exactly what you spoke about, the dual coding. Um, I then added, so, so, I, so basically I, I created my own picture book with the story of dividing by half and, and what that looked, in, looked like in pictures and then, and then putting a voice over to that. So, uh, and, and that worked quite nicely with, with that group of kids because they're seeing it happen and because they can see it unfolding in an animated page in, in front of them um, and having it spoken through to them as well um you know it's a small difference but it does make a big difference Um, i think um george one one of the themes in in previous podcasts has been the use of technology and it's something we've we've only really touched upon but we're we're keen to drill down into and i know you're a huge advocate of of paperless schools and and using tech much more uh, effectively but um you know what you what you've just said there was that storybook then uh, i'm just imagining maybe pupils having headphones and then able to replay sections so that you know if they didn't quite get it first time they can go back to it and i suppose if that if that is the case what you're doing there is you're creating resources which which actually tick a lot of boxes you know they're ticking the the metacognition box the the send box um you know they've got that for revision um and yeah it just dovetails so nicely with uh, I think the direction that we're trying to go uh, in, in terms of incorporating more tech into what we're doing. 
Yeah. And, and just sort of looking into that as well, because from for teachers listening to George describing that, there might be some teachers there thinking, well, that's a great lesson. But what's that got to do with thinking schools? I would say like it's about looking at the micro and, and the macro. So if we zoom out from that, the idea is that that's George working and George, I don't want to be speaking for you here. Maybe you could clarify this, but that's you working in your classroom in a thinking school. If you zoom out from that, there are a whole series of classrooms with equally innovative systems going on based on the same principles. And, and that's the point of a thinking school, not that you're doing that in isolation, uh, but that you're one great teacher amongst a whole series of great teachers practicing in a similar way. Uh, am I, am I right in that? Yeah, and 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 it can take. Um, I suppose it can take uh, any route. So again, coming back to the tech, um, for me, teaching a, a course of algebra to to thirteen year olds is again very abstract and and can be very very tricky. Um, so so I used uh, an application called Explain Everything. So my explanations were quite abstract. So 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 going back to my videos and re looking at my at, at, at the screen sh- um, shots that I'd made or the screen. Uh, the screencasts that I'd created, um, the actual screen screencasts themselves weren't that great. So what I did was I, I tested a bunch of kids on 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 algebra, early algebra, uh, and then I and then I put them through a course of dual coding where I then taught and sent them two three minute uh, screencasts um, of algebra and the processes, introduction all the way through to manipulating um, numbers and signs across an equal uh, equal sign. Um, and then post that they rewrote exactly the same test. So I was able to compare you know if there was anything that they picked up. And in those screencasts I I added a little scale you know to to represent the equal sign. And um, and it wasn't so much the amazing teaching that they remembered; it was more that image of that scale. That was that was so. So coming back to analyzing each of the questions that they that they answered, and 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 in asking how did they remember, or how, how did they change, and why did they change their thought process, um, it was that image, that visual of the scale, and the the narrative around that scale and the equal sign, and how that um, how they tied in. Um, so. Which was fascinating for me, for because it wasn't so much the numbers at the end of the day. It was literally that image of that scale, um, and, 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 that's, and that's triggering their their um, memory, isn't it? And and it, so it's the the visual schema that they'll remember, and and therefore the process will just unfold from that point. Um, and and that I think is is also the case for for thinking frames or thinking maps once they once they understand the, the how to lay them out that they recall that process and so rather than teaching in lots of different ways you reduce the cognitive load by doing things like that um so your pupils yeah they just recall that wouldn't they they remember that way of doing things um explain everything is something we're quite familiar with david and it was another south african actually tony Rima. she uh, was a huge advocate of that and and we know don't we that you know and thinking masses would agree teaching others is one of the most effective ways of, of um, embedding learning and, and sort of strengthening those neurological pathways. So, yeah, I think just the children using Spain Everything is hugely beneficial, although that's just one platform. I'm sure there are others. It is. Um, and I, I actually I found Explain Everything a bit annoying recently because of the purchasing system of it. I tried to use it recently uh, with my current school and I ended up giving up because there was a difficulty with children saving their work and um, which of course is a bit pointless if you can't 
if you do this great piece and you can't actually save it. So I do use explain everything for when I'm creating a video to show to children. Um, but I don't always do it with children because I'm struggling a bit with that kind of system. So I'm, I'm looking for other technology. So if uh, people know of some, do let me know some similar similar ways of doing things to explain everything. So um, actually, that moves us on nicely to to subscription and, and cost because there'll be people out there thinking, "Crikey, you know, we're, we're a, a such and such school. We're a such and such school. We're paying two thousand pounds here, four thousand pounds here. You know, can we really afford to be a thinking school? Do we want to launch another initiative?" And and I think particularly at this moment when budgets are quite tight, uh, you know, regardless of sector. Um, I think it's it's something that we we should bear in mind. But that begs the question: Do do you actually need to to sign up to a, a particular way of doing things to become a thinking school? Yeah, I I'm I'm shaking my head here because I think we have to go back and ask what is the value of the thinking school? We've been we've been talking about a particular system for this whole episode, but I I think we have to look at what it is about that system that's valuable and what it gave to us. When I think about my teaching and how it developed over the about 10 years that I was in the system. I am very grateful for the fact that I became a teacher who was not really aware of pedagogy. I was really into my subject and I still am English, but I was, I was not really, I didn't know a lot about what pedagogy was, uh, even in my kind of fifth year of teaching or sixth year of teaching. What the thinking school system did for me was it made me start to read up and I started to read John Hattie and I started to read Daniel Willingham and Daisy Christalulu. And I suddenly started to think as a teacher a lot more about my practice and I wanted to try things out and I wanted to talk to people about it. So you can can have a drive team and (laughs) and not do any of the the toolkit side of things. You can actually have it just for for the reason you've mentioned. Uh, well, I, I'd, I'd throw that one to George and, and say, you know, is is it valuable just to have a drive team that is effectively talking pedagogy uh, or w- what's the value of having the whole package? Yeah, I think um, I think this kind of thing obviously needs to be backed up with some theory. So, um, you know, and then an and experience, um, you know, like you say, you've, you know, as as, as soon as you, you, you got into thinking schools, uh, you know, that's when you that's when you became enlightened, I suppose, you started reading a lot more. And, um, and, and I think that reading then brings in that experience. So, you know, I mean, obviously looking at all the different websites of thinking matters and thinking schools and thinking maps and all of that, um, there's so much out there and there's so many different, I mean, there's, there are obviously a couple of the main organizations that, that, that drive the process and where it all started, but then there are little offshoots here and there that pick up on that. So my question then is exactly what, what, what Ross is saying. Do you need the subs to all these different places when you have people who are passionate about driving something and who are and obviously educated enough to pick up on those pieces and 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 use those resources to drive it within your school? Plus, given the fact that you know how your school operates, you understand the culture of your school and how to embed th- a program of philosophy or or thinking into your own school. So yeah, so I, I, I think it can be done. I, I believe it can be done without subs. Um, but at the same time, like you said, Dave, you know, where would we be? Where would our thought processes be without those those organisations like Thinking Matters? You know, who who are putting it out there and who are providing those resources. So 
So yeah, so it's quite a tricky one. I think it's the thinking about what, what do we actually need, and and I think you know I'm not um, I'm not in a position of like senior leadership yeah. myself at the moment, but if I was, I would always be asking what what am I paying? What's mm. the time commitment, and mm. what am I going to get out of it? And I'd have to really be convinced that you know Ross, you mentioned this earlier. I'd be happy, really convinced that what I was. Um, committing the teachers to would be worthwhile for the pupils it's got to have impact and i need to see some evidence on that yeah and 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 i suppose to become accredited you know you need to go through the process of of signing up to you know um you know to thinking matters so 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 i suppose subs for 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 things like this would would be necessary for accreditation purposes because what happens if the driver of the process then shifts or moves somewhere else you know who picks up that um that momentum yeah and i think i mean so my experience is that before i left uh my last school uh one of the things that what 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 had happened effectively was that um our thinking status our accreditation had, had just lapsed uh, as it does every few years and it seemed pointless to go for reaccreditation given that we'd been a thinking school since I don't know, something like 2014. So what we did is we went for advanced thinking school status. And obviously that took a lot more, a lot more work in terms of putting it all together. And the drive team worked really hard on that. And the whole school worked really hard on that. But what it did was sort of recognize that we'd moved on. And I think that avoided us feeling like we'd stayed static uh, for you know, the almost 10 years. And it meant that we kind of had that sense that we're going to something bigger now we were we were to do that you have to show that you're much more engaged with not just your own school but that you're sharing with other schools and you're sharing in publications and you're working with the community ross you want to say something as well i was just going to say that you know you almost need a a continuous goal or target for the drive team to work towards so that there there is no loss of of momentum and and that it doesn't just then fade after you know because organizations suffer skill fade when when staff move on and and key individuals who are particularly passionate so um what you said there with advanced accreditation you almost need the next step and and i believe actually that could be exactly what you said just at the end there david about providing more to the community and i know that had a lot of events for local primary schools local teachers local parents to come and and learn about this in a in a fun interactive way sort of after hours and and that was all delivered by the drive team so i think in a way you're then providing a service but um if that is off script and if that's all being generated by the drive team and it's not really, uh, you know, part of the suggested way forward from a from an organisation. Then, really, it goes full circle. It goes back to the original point, which is: Do you need to be accredited if if your staff are thinking and discussing these things and are motivated? It's a really good question. I mean, uh, I don't know if this answers the question, but you talked a little bit about skill loss, and we've had, we've thought about the idea of teachers moving on. George, when you left your schools in South Africa to come to the UK, you know, they will have lost your experience as a teacher, your significant experience as, as a teacher within a system, which, you know, has been gained by another school. So, but, and we know teachers leave, teachers move on. We've mentioned there are strikes happening this week and people are probably considering if the strikes aren't uh, successful, then there'll be some teachers who will leave teaching. Uh, that's the case of it. There will be a, a, a loss what I 
one of the things that I did as part of the advanced accreditation for uh, the thinking school for the last for the last place, I actually put together a, a list of all of the training we'd done over two or three years. And it was both in-house and external. And I just listed who'd been at that training, which teachers had been there. So I had a full list of everyone who'd been there. And from that, I could understand that even if I don't know what they got out of that training, but I knew that this teacher had been through three rounds of training on thinking maps over the course of three years, for example. And therefore, they were probably pretty adept at thinking maps. One of the other things I did is I, I logged when a teacher had left uh, the school. And so, for example, Ross, you moved on about uh, a year before I did. Uh, I think exactly a year. And so I noted that you'd left the school as the fact that, you know, Ross had been a drive team member. He'd been an experienced, uh, he'd been in senior leadership. He'd been an experienced teacher and he had all this training and he's left. And I noted on that, I said, it's something for us to think about as a school when a teacher leaves, um, we lose that experience. And uh, what was really lovely was that the Exeter University came back and said, specifically, we really liked that you were reflecting on this. Uh, we were really liked that you were thinking about these big issues of retention and experience loss. Um, as part of the bigger picture, it was showing there was metacognition going on within the school about itself. And um, that's that that affirmation was nice to have because it wasn't just a case of us saying, Hey, look, we're doing this and we're doing this and we're doing this for the community and we're teaching these things to kids and look what they can do. It was us saying, you know, there are some things we could work on and we're aware of that. And I, I liked that, that we got praise for that effectively. And I think that's what the whole thinking philosophy is all about. It's exactly that. It's the, it's the reflective. It's not just answering five questions or ticking boxes and, and dotting I's and crossing T's. It's, it, it, it embraces that whole philosophy of thinking and you know your metacognition, which is which is great. Yeah, you know? and I think we're often so lost in our day to day grind of getting getting through things, um, and we don't have enough. We often don't have enough time just to think and reflect and and ask and ask the children, you know, why are we doing it that way? Or and and, and while while we've all been talking, I've been thinking about this question. Of you know, do you need the subs? Do you need that? Probably, Ross, you're thinking about that too. And I, I think you don't necessarily need thinking school or thinking matters. But what you, you, what any school does need is it needs something to hang its pedagogy off. And whatever that is, it's got to be a vision. It's got to be something that, as you said, Ross, is kind of a goal that you're moving towards. Um, just like we need children need structure to hang their ideas off. I think we as a school, we need this sort of sense of what we are. We need to have our understanding of our, our identity, whatever that identity is. And our pedagogy is intrinsically linked to that. I can think of schools where I've worked or that I know of where they're not thinking schools, but they have a unique pedagogy uh, based on their values. One I'm particularly thinking of in London, which is St. James Boys Junior and Girls School. I started my teaching career there and um, I was also a pupil there for two years in sixth form. So St. James's do meditation. They teach Sanskrit. Um, they're very esoteric and their philosophy drives their education. You can see that there's a value to what they do. And they're not a thinking school, but they have a lot of systems and structures around mindfulness and well-being that they've been doing since the 70s. 
that perhaps other schools are sort of trying to bring in. Uh, we should probably mention that mindfulness is something that I think is a big part of thinking schools these days that perhaps wasn't there originally, but has, has really crept in, particularly post-pandemic. Ross, uh, you're going to say something. Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, I'd like to touch upon the mindfulness point uh, just quickly and then go back go back to what you were saying about what, what drives a, a school and, and informs its pedagogy. But uh, the, the mindfulness thing, so I, I personally was, was fairly sceptical of, of mindfulness. I had no exposure to it. I, I didn't practice yoga, uh, you know, but, but we were in an environment which, which actually um, put us as, as teachers through a six-week mindfulness course for free if if we wanted to do it. And the caveat was, if you if you complete the course, can you please introduce it to your pupils in in form time? You know, as a as a discrete pastoral tool. And uh, and so I did it. I did the course, and um, you know, not not as many people finished the course as started it, but uh, it was it was absolutely brilliant and and i use it with my my tutees now um i use it in a variety of different ways and and i think the confusion for for lots of people particularly uh who who i talk to maybe day to day is is what mindfulness actually is and and it's until you you explore it properly and experience it that you're you're clouded as to what you, you think it might be and, and maybe the limits to its usefulness. And I, I know there's a lot of confusion over, uh, you know, whether it's uh, just just coordinated breathing or, or maybe a bit more than that. But um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a reason why mindfulness is, is a core principle of, um, of a thinking school toolkit. Yeah, so devil, devil's advocate, yeah. Um, is there a place for thinking schools in... Um, in an environment where where academics are, are uh, where there's high pressure for for for, for academic attainment, um, really good question. So one of the vis uh, we had two visitors um, during when I was running the the drive team at, at Notting Hill, we had two visitors from uh, China to uh, to look at the school that had been put in touch with me via Thinking Matters, and um, we've talked on a previous episode about. Uh, the education in China very briefly, but the background to it is that there's quite a lot more rote learning. So you might think of the mastery method of maths or sometimes called the Shanghai method in the UK. Um, there's quite a bit more rote learning. I, I don't want to go into that too much detail, but that's more the system in, in China. And these two visitors were very interested in thinking school ethos because they felt that that had gone too far and they wanted to bring a bit more critical thinking in. They were really keen on the idea that children were given more opportunities to reflect and uh, and think in different ways, metacognition, if you like, rather than just the rote learning. Now, they were from extra school organisations. So they were kind of like tutoring type organisations. So they weren't schools so much. Uh, and, and one of them was involved in higher education rather than, you know, kind of our age group. But um I thought it was interesting that that was their that was their approach, and 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 so you're asking the question, George. You know, in a acad- very academic sort of setup, is there room for this? Uh, yes, I think there is, and I definitely think, from my experience of London day schools, um, the the private day schools here uh, can be very very high pressured in terms of their academics. But if you talk to the head teachers or if you listen to them, 
they will all say the same thing, which is uh, we want we want children who are yes, who are able to do the the academics and the thinking, but we want children who are able to think about things in a different way, who are able to reflect. And actually, I'd add on to that and say one head teacher that I will always remember said, fundamentally, we want kind children. And uh, I think maybe that comes back to the mindfulness, I think, uh, the values, the habits, um, because it would be no point having children who are incredibly brainy and able to do loads of different things academically get into the best universities if they're not kind. So I, I, I think I think from my experience of of some high pressure academic places, yeah, I, I think there is a place for this there. But there's also a body of research conducted by Exeter, which which proves that actually pupils that have been to a thinking school throughout their primary years as well as secondary years have then got a seven to ten month attainment advantage over those that haven't been to a thinking school. So you know that that is incredibly useful, I think, for for pushing that attainment driven argument. I, th- I think the the degree of advantage is even greater for those pupils with. Um, you know, specific learning needs. Can I just say though, Ross, um, I'm not questioning the value of that research, but it was carried out for thinking matters, uh, as I understand. So, um, you know, it, it, it's a study that was looking to prove the effect of thinking school on children, uh, which doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that it, it went out there with the intention of of looking for evidence as opposed to perhaps a study that went out there trying to sort of be a bit more more sort of like, hey, you know, what's going on with these strategies kind of thing. Um, and I think the reason that there isn't that much other research out there is because thinking schools are kind of, um, I mean, there are quite a few of them out there, but it's still a bit small in terms of sort of um, major educational movements. Uh, we can probably sort of, you know, there are other bigger things going on in the UK than thinking schools in terms of education and worldwide as well. Uh, so, you know, things like teach like a champion, for example, that kind of stuff is, is very famous, very well known. Um, perhaps a bit more research going into those sorts of things. Uh, so it's not to discredit that it's just to sort of like put a caveat on it. No, and I, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, as a historian, I think, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, we should be should be keen to to identify maybe the the obvious bias there but but there is there is data there and and i think you know i'm not certainly not on the payroll at thinking matters but um what i would suggest is if you're looking at it you could visit their website and the the research is is all linked there so you can you can read it from the horse's mouth but um going back to what you mentioned earlier if we we can just quickly is um you were saying that st james isn't a thinking school but it but it has its own quite clear pedagogical um they have a, a way of doing things and they they know why they do them, or at least they, they feel quite strongly that they're doing something for a particular reason. There is a benefit to doing it. And they and, definitely have an identity and that identity informs the, 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 the way in which all teachers do things as far as, uh, you know, I, I've not been involved directly for many years. Yeah, they do a lot of stuff uh, that's based on their 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 unique values i'd say and and so really the question is and i think uh, this could maybe bring our episode to a close today the value of having an organization which is driven by something that it 
that it believes and that that belief be supported by research. I wonder if there's a danger that if you if you do something and it is based on belief that it then tends to just over time become an ideology and and that you you're simply doing it because that's the way it's been done. And I think one of the benefits to having a drive team is that you stay current and and as you know research contradictory research comes out all the time uh, and and so perhaps having that team feed into your your mo you know your, your, the way the way you do things is is logical almost to to have because you're you're tapping into current research what do you think about that you're taking it to the step further and saying actually it's not just enough to know who you are as a school you need to have uh, an active sort of mindset that's kind of um thinking reading reflecting questioning talking to each other and almost not remaining static not remaining ideologically driven but just kind of um having that that sense of excitement that buzz about what it is you do and and maybe for us at least you know yeah the thinking school did give us that that's for sure uh george i don't know do you what do you what do you think yeah, I, I agree fully. Um, I think it's, you know, having a look at the habits of mind, yeah, just uh, the list list up in front of me, and it, it's a great way for for a school to 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 direct or redirect, you know, its purpose and um, and and filter those down throughout the whole school. Um, and if and 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 just having a look at them, they the everyday things that we that we probably should be doing as as good citizens anyway, um, but but. But when caught up in your average, in your in your normal day day of life, um, I think we do tend to kind of go off uh, go off track slightly. So, so yeah, I think it's a good way of of being kept honest um, in terms of uh, qualities, good qualities, good traits, and um, and to, and to and to stay the path. Yeah. Brilliant. So I, I think um, it's clearly a topic we're all quite passionate about, and we could just go on and on and on. But um, really, if you're if you're currently thinking about whether or not your organisation be- should become a thinking school, or, or whether you just simply want to incorporate some of the the tools that we we've covered, or, or simply whether you want to organise your own book club amongst the staff, and you you know you may well not be in a position to impact change, or you might think that, but um, you know hopefully you've you've picked up on on at least some ideas from the discussion and there is as is clear from this discussion no one set way of doing things nothing to add just to apologize for my very croaky voice today because um probably like a lot of the uk teachers at the moment i'm suffering from some sort of cold which um has turned my voice like this um we're um we're just very grateful for george joining us on this uh, program you've really given us so much to think about george and uh i really appreciate you giving up your time thank you thanks very much for having me uh, it was uh, a lot of fun lovely chatting you've been listening to the rest is education we're an educational platform by teachers for teachers and you can find us on most of the social media platforms we're on instagram linkedin we're also available by email so you can find us at uh, the rest is education at gmail.com and i know david's uh, just about to say you you forgot twitter we're also available on twitter uh, if you're a, a tweeter okay well, thanks for listening hopefully we'll have aaron back with us soon and um yeah th- thanks again <laughs>